Hello and welcome to Meet the Researcher, where we meet staff from the Faculty of Sport, Health and Social Sciences at Solent University. This podcast is for anyone interested in research and the person behind the process. It's hosted by me, Dr Emma Mosley and Dr Mark Turner, where we take it in turns to chat to faculty members to get to know them and their research. We hope you enjoy. week's episode of Meet the Researcher. We are joined today by Dr James Wright, uh, who is a lecturer in physiology here at Solent University. Um, Hi James, thank you for coming on. Hello Emma, thank you for having me. So we'll get cracking with the the questions. The first one is how did you get to where you are today? Okay, so um... I started with an undergraduate degree in sports science at Portsmouth University, and when I graduated, I I knew that I wanted to do a master's, or I thought I wanted to do a master's, but I wasn't 100% sure why I wanted to do it. So I took some time out, I went back home, lived with my parents, and I ended up putting a job as a cardiac technician at uh, St Richard's Hospital in Chichester. So it wasn't something that I thought about doing with a sports science degree. They actually did say sports science on the application um, form, so I'll give that a go, um, and it does link with my sort of interest in physiology. Uh, I did that for a while, and I really, I really did enjoy it. But the problem was, it became apparent that you can't really progress unless you have a clinical physiology degree. So they offered the chance for me to go back to university to study clinical physiology. Um, but I'd only just graduated, and it didn't seem that appealing at the time to restart uh, an entire undergraduate degree again. So I turned that down. Um, I was continuing working there, but then a job came up as a sports technician at Southampton University. So I took that opportunity, and I, and I moved to Southampton. So I moved away from the clinical side into, into sport, which I only really is where I wanted to be. And... I had a good sort of five years there, and they were really supportive, and they they uh, they funded my masters, which I did part time at Portsmouth University. So it all kind of worked out for the best in the end. So I did my um, I did my masters part time, and then as soon as I finished that, they gave me the opportunity to start basic supervised experience. So I did that, and so to become a accredited sports scientist, and again that took uh, sort of another two years, and during this process. I then took up a, a new role at Winchester University. And so still a technician's job, but it had it was a technician and teaching assistant. So it had a bit more teaching added on. So I thought that was good for me in terms of career progression. And so I took that role and I finished my uh, I was accredited by by that point and I was thinking what the next step was. So my supervisor for basis SE, um, we, we had a conversation and at that point started part-time PhD and I was at Winchester for probably about three years and then I moved to Solent. Same job, technical job, but it was more teaching again as a technician instructor. So sort of moving towards an academic career, but still keeping that technical role so I really did enjoy it. And completed my PhD probably, I took about six or so years to do, I guess, part-time. 
Um, and then when I finished that, so it was just at the end, probably a year before I finished, I took a lecturing post at Solent. So most of my academic career has been technical. And in the last two and a half, three years, it's moved into uh, a lecturing post. But I think what's become quite apparent, I think, from that story is that I've done everything fairly slowly and part-time. And for me, it worked really well. I know that some people, you know, are desperate to try and get things done as quickly as possible. But certainly from an undergraduate point of view, if any students are listening, I think, it's, you know, there is no rush, I don't think. You know, from my experience, there isn't. Um, and I've got to the same point as a lot of my colleagues, uh, but it's just taken longer. I guess the thing is, you, you end up being a student of such, whether that's being an undergrad, postgrad, um, or PhD student. Well, if you, if you go back to school, I've basically been a student from the age of about five up until 35. So it was, uh, yeah, it's a long time of being a student, but um, I guess if you're sort of enjoying the process, it's all worth it. So that's me, and here I am now talking to you. <laughs> amazing do you know what that's such a a great um like variation on on how you got to be in academia because I think like traditionally most of the people that we've spoken to it's kind of that very traditional full-time education route uh you know mm -hmm. undergrad master's PhD and then lecturing and I think you know it just sounds like you kind of just were in the right place at the right time and all the opportunities <laughs> kind of just took you on that that journey so that's as really really cool to hear that yeah i've said i've been very fortunate from that point of view and supportive colleagues supportive um sort of places of work to, to allow that to happen but yeah it's certainly been certainly been a good journey to get to this point yeah absolutely um okay so other than that side of your life we'd like to know one fact about you that doesn't relate to to research or academia yes thank you emma i was uh Struggling with this question a little bit, trying to think of something fun to talk about. Maybe my ability to win uh, a competition of making uh, scones at a local fete, which I did do. Um, but it's actually talking uh, or thinking about London Marathon, because I've been trying to get into London Marathon for years. 16 years of applying for the London Ballot. And this year, I finally got in. So I guess it's a story of perseverance. Um, but I started in 2005, which is when I graduated. And at that time, if you enter five years in a row, you would get in automatically on your fifth year. And in 2009, they moved the application to online. So it used to be a paper um, application that you'd get from a running magazine from the local running shop. And then 2009, they moved online. I didn't realise, missed the ballot, and that was my fifth year. So I didn't get in. So I should have done it in 2009. And then I had to start again in 2010, and it didn't count the first four. It was five consecutive years. So basically, I was back at time point one year. And then when I got to the fifth year that time, they had scrapped that rule because there were too many people entering ballot. That if they did that, then literally the whole London Marathon would be taken up by ballot places, uh, by five years' worth of ballot. Oh, right. So I then just had to do it every single year. And now I've, I've got in. And to be honest, I, I guess I'm saying this to announce to anyone listening that I'm doing it because that might make me train and do it. <laughs> There's no backing away now if everyone knows about it. It's official now, James. It's official it. now. Um, well, you know that we're going to su support you doing that. And I'm so glad that you finally got in. Um, 
rather you than me, I can't run further than 5K. <laughs> it's just that extra level. I'm, I'm quite happy running 10 miles, half a marathon, but I've never done a marathon. And I've only ever said, I'll do one and it'll be London. Yeah. Oh, well, um, best of luck. I hope your training's going well. But it's pushed back now to October because of coronavirus. So yeah, okay. it's still a bit of time. And hopefully it'll be nicer weather and it could be a bit cooler because yeah. sometimes London Marathon falls on a very hot day. So hopefully it'll be a, a good event and, and, and it will allow people to watch and it will still take place as it would. Because I think part of the, the dream of doing it is obviously the support. Absolutely. And, you know, I certainly don't want to do it on a closed um a closed route so I, I think i'd defer if that was the case yeah absolutely oh well best of luck that is amazing and i'm i'm sure you'll smash it um okay so let's move on to your research then and find out a little bit about what you're interested in so what is your research area so i would at the moment i would say that my research area certainly my phd research area was based around critical power and in particular within cycling but also um, linking to sort of the reliability and validity of testing protocols and equipment. That aspect of it came from starting my PhD looking into critical power. So it wasn't necessarily something that I'd originally proposed to do. But critical power is a, effectively, if we take a step back, if we think about exercise, we could break exercise down into sort of three exercise intensity domains. So we can have a uh, we can rest, let's say for so rest, we can have moderate exercise uh, intensity, heavy intensity, severe, and, and then you, you can have extreme. But really, we're, we're looking at that moderate, heavy to severe and, and thinking about what's the physiological response to exercising in each of those. So if we exercise in the moderate domain, it's, it's effectively easy. You could have a conversation when you were running alongside someone you would reach a physiological steady state. So your oxygen uptake would plateau, your blood lactate would plateau, um, and you could continue that exercise for several hours. The next domain is, is known as heavy, and, and there you have like a delayed response for that steady state. So it takes a little bit more time to, to, to become comfortable. Um, you can talk, but it's just not as easy. So if you went for a slightly harder run, you can still have a conversation with someone, but you wouldn't want to have a full conversation about your day. And then the severe domain is, is, is effectively, you're going to fatigue imminently. You know that you're on sort of borrowed time, they, they call it. And um, if, you, if you maintain that kind of pace or power, uh, you, you would end up fatiguing. So as a, a sort of an athlete or a coach, What's really useful to know is what's the separation of those, because ultimately we can we can break that down to pace. So the the, the boundary between the moderates, so the uh, the one where you can talk comfortably and heavy, is is effectively your marathon pace. So from my point of view, I would want to know what is that pace because then I could stick at that for the marathon. If you go too slow, obviously you're not really using your full potential. But if you go too high too hard you're you're going to burn out before you reach the end and then the same can happen for the, between the heavy and severe so uh, that's more aligned to maybe a sort of a 10k distance of 30 40 minutes um, but again having that understanding of, of what that is would help you um, help you sort of set your training or training kind of uh, or racing type strategy 
So there's, there's different ways of um, separating those boundaries. And between moderate and heavy is a lactate threshold, and between heavy and severe is critical power. So my, my research was focusing on that critical power aspect. It's really useful in terms of, from an athlete's point of view, from a coach's point of view, but how do we actually measure it? Can we measure it accurately? Can we measure it with, uh, with limited disruption to uh, an athlete's kind of training? Because sometimes when you're working with an, uh, an athlete, their coach might be, uh, they might want this information, but if you say, oh, it takes five days to get this information, they'll be like, I'd rather them not do that and just carry on with their normal training. So the way that critical power works is basically, it's based on a the sort of power duration relationship. So in effect, if I asked you to run 100 meters as quickly as you could, and you say 15 seconds, and then I could do the same for um, 400 meters, 800 meters, 1500 meters, you would end up with a, a sort of hyperbolic relationship and it, uh, you'd end up with a, um, an asymptote where it levels off. And, and that leveling off is representative of your critical power. That relationship seen in cycling, running, rowing, swimming, um, in humans, but also other species. They've, they've done this research in ghost crabs and racehorses and mice. So it's a physiological response. You can, you can take the world record times for every single discipline. So you could take the 100, 200, and you will get exactly the same shape trace with that asymptote. So theoretically, the, the critical power represents the, the sort of highest rate of aerobic steady state. Um, so if we know that, as I said, if you go above it, you will, um, you're effectively be going to fatigue. So what's good about the protocol is that it gives you an indication of your sort of aerobic capacity, but it also gives you an indication of your anaerobic component because uh, we can work out the um, that work above the critical power. So if we think about it in terms of a, a guess like a, a mobile phone as a battery, if you have your mobile phone and it's plugged in, you could use it all day. If you took the battery out, or you took the, yeah, if you took the charger out, you, you could still use your phone, but effectively you know that that phone's going to die at some point. And that's you going above your critical power. So you can use it. Um, you can put it down uh, and you can make it last a bit longer so you can stop, but effectively, if you continue exercising above without charging, you'll go into fatigue, your battery's going to run out. So the only way if you exercise too hard to recharge that battery is to go below your critical power. So if you effectively slow down, you're, you're effectively recharging your phone again. So some, some researchers are modeling that and effectively like having a running watch or a, a head unit on a bike, is effectively having like a battery for you as an individual to say, right, this is my battery. And if it gets to zero, I'm completely fatigued. So you want to, to pace a race that it would in effect get to the, to the end without you doing that. Um, so it's a really useful marker, but it's, it's potentially challenging to, to do. So the, the, the typical relationship, because it's based on like a mathematical model, you need multiple points to actually get an accurate value. So if you only have two, one of those might not be the best efforts, in which case it would completely skew the results. So traditionally, it's, it's between sort of three to five visits to a lab. And you would ask an individual to exercise to exhaustion at different power outputs or different, different time periods. So 
as a protocol, it takes a long time. It could take five visits to the lab, each taking approximately, you know, half an hour to an hour with warm-ups, cool-downs. And, and just athletes aren't that interested and in wanting to do that. There's different ways of, of looking. You can get the data from the field. So you can you can use um, historical data that you might have saved previously, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's ever your best effort, but it could give you a good estimate. But then there's research that had come out was around 2006-7, looking at can they estimate this from a three-minute all-out test? So if, if that was the case, that would be really beneficial because you could just have one visit to lab, three minutes, and you would get this value for critical power. Um, and in effect, what they do is in that protocol, they just ask the individual to sprint on a bike without pacing for three minutes. It's really hard. It's the worst test I've ever done personally in my life. So you get on a bike and you imagine if I just said to you, right, I want you to sprint as hard as you can without, you know, without pacing for, for 20 seconds. You could really, you know, push hard, really high power output and then say, right, now I want you to continue for three minutes. You feel like you want to give up within 20 seconds, to be honest, but then you just keep going. <clears throat> Effectively, if we're asking someone to exercise for that period of time, you would anticipate that the anaerobic aspect of that individual would be completely depleted. So if they're still cycling at, at three minutes with the maximum effort, that should represent that boundary between anaerobic and aerobic because you haven't got yet anaerobic component left. Mm. So the, the final power output of that three minute test has been closely uh, related to critical power. So that's what I wanted to do. That was my PhD. I wanted to use that test and link it with triathletes and duathletes and thinking about how does the critical power change if you've done a preceding event. So you can calculate your critical power for cycling. That's easy. But how does it how is that affected if you've already done a swimming aspect of the triathlon? And then how does the run um, critical velocity, they'll call it if you're if you're running. How is that affected by the preceding cycle and swim? So my PhD started off in that direction, but I wanted to use this three-minute test. So my first study was a reliability, validity-based study, just to, 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 to confirm that protocol. And I just couldn't get it to do exactly what previous researchers had found. So my whole PhD changed, and, and really the, the whole PhD became a reliability and a sort of validation study of that particular protocol and uh, manipulating some of the variables slightly and coming up with a, a novel method for doing it um, to, to then hopefully use in the future. Mm. So even though it started off as, yes, I'm going to use this and I'm going to do this with it, I'm still sort of seven years later at the point where I'm not that confident to use it. So complete change of direction um, but it really got me thinking about the reliability and validity of equipment and protocols and I think that links with my technical experience so having worked as a technician for you know for, for, for many years I, I guess I've, I've always seen firsthand you know issues with calibration and uh, servicing and just the fact that something costs a lot of money in the lab doesn't necessarily mean it's the most reliable or valid mm -hmm. and 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 making sure as a researcher that everything I use I'm then going to do an independent study to check 
before I'm confident to use that going forward. So, so that's where I am now. I would say I'm still interested in critical power. Um, I'm certainly interested in reliability and validity of the technical aspect. Um, but I'm still trying to, to find a solution to my original PhD idea. And that would be wonderful if I ever, you know, could, could, could answer that question. Gosh, that is so interesting. And I think like when you think about like elite sport and those differences and like finding, like you say, like that critical power and understanding that, if that like measurement is wrong in the first instance because the test isn't necessarily reflecting what it should do, then that impacts like performance and the information that that athlete's been given or the coach has been given. So it's, it really can have a big impact, can't it, in terms of like, what actually happens further down the line in terms of an athlete's performance. Yeah, it really can. And I think in terms of that particular test is certainly reliable. Um, I definitely found it's reliable. So if you're using it as a case of monitoring performance changes, you could you could certainly use that. And then if you did some training and you improved, you would see that reflection in that test. What I didn't find it was that the, 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 the validation aspect and whether or not it was, if you were using it as a sort of the, the training aspect, I think um, it was questionable for me. But in part, it comes down to, um, and I think with some tests, that one in particular, there's a, there's a heavy um, uh, impact in terms of instruction to the participants, the athletes, and the motivation internally from them because it is a horrible test. So if they're not giving, you know, 100%, it isn't going to work. And there is a huge motivational aspect and, and finding that internal motivation from all the people that you're going to test is very difficult. So you, you really, and there's, there's a set of criteria that you have to meet to, to ascertain whether or not it's a successful test or not. But it's certainly easier to do that test if you're with someone. So if you're doing the test and you know you're providing that um, that that motivation, when when these types of tests become more difficult, is if the protocol exists and individual athletes are taking this into their own home and thinking, oh, I've read about that, I could potentially do that. It is more difficult because then they might not understand. The, the nuances of what they're looking at in terms of the analysis and whether or not it was a successful test. Yeah. So I certainly think it, it's a really successful test. It's, um, you know, it's used throughout and it's still heavily used in the literature. It's very, um, it's a very popular test and, it, and it, is, it's, it's, it can be used to answer so many different research questions. My, my biggest concern is just the, the actual the validation of critical power I, I've got the, the questions about, and that's the bit that I'm really interested in. So, yeah. um, as you say, it's, it could be misleading. It could, you know, not, not be the most helpful for, for athletes. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so what about some of your current work? What are you kind of working on at the moment? So I imagine it's to do with answering these questions that you still have so, at the moment i'm still trying to finish off my uh, to try and publish my final phd study which is looking at, at the more novel um protocols a bit more challenging to, to to do that because obviously coming up with something novel and um you know sharing that across um across the sort of academic world is a bit more challenging than some, something else but still working on that um so that's something i'm sort of interested in the other aspect that i'm doing at the moment is working in um i've got a link with 
couple of football clubs, uh, professional football clubs, and and looking at using um, looking at the tests that they're doing. So it's nothing to do with critical power. Um, it's more about physiological measurements that the, the sports scientists would do with their football players, and really looking at again the reliability, sensitivity of some of these field-based measurements that are used in football clubs. Because I think it's like a lot of things. We, 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 we often do the same types of protocol, testing protocol again and again without, you know, sometimes without consideration about is it the best thing to do? Does it actually, is it sensitive enough to see a change? Because ultimately that's what they're doing it for. So that's something I'm really interested in at the moment in the sense that I think I've got to a point that I really want to have research questions coming to me from applied practitioners rather than the other way around. Um, I think it's very easy to sit in a, a sort of an academic bubble and come up with research ideas when in reality they don't have the actual impact for the applied end. So, and it's very difficult without working full time as an applied practitioner, it's very difficult to come up with those questions. So uh, for me personally, I think that's, that's the, the best way going forward. So having those relationships with people that are working day in, day out, and then saying, what are the questions? What are you struggling with? What, what can't you answer? What, what are you concerned about? And then we can then work together and say, okay, well, we could, we could test that, we could measure that, and then we could see if what we're doing is, is the most appropriate. So I can see that's something that I'll, I'll, I'll be taking forward in the future. Yeah, that sounds really interesting and, and really, really useful for that audience who perhaps, you know, it isn't maybe like completely up to date with the most, you know, like, new tests or things like that and I think it is that cross between actually having that relationship with people working in the field and like you say like it then that research question is really meaningful because it's something that they're going to be doing every single day um to to make those like small changes in performance um so I think that leads really nicely like to to question uh, number five which really links to kind of what you just said like why do you do what you do what's the the bigger picture here so what ultimately in terms of your career do you want that impact to be yeah i think originally my i, I guess my phd um original phd idea came from the fact that i, I i've done a lot of work with uh, sort of external athletes that would come to the lab so everywhere i've worked and we we, we offer Sort of a consultancy service at Somers, where we have a website, we've got a list of testing protocols, whether it's a lactate threshold, BHU max test, and externals would, would you know, pay to come into the lab and we would provide that service for them. And, and I've always thought, you know, what are we offering? Is it the best testing protocol that we're offering? Is it uh, the, the, the best measure for them? And it's really wanting to to help the athletes, to help them to achieve their, their highest potential, um, but to have confidence in, in what we're doing, to say this particular test, and, and things change and things move on, and to say, actually, I know you've read about this, but, because I think sometimes that's the, the problem that we have, is that, 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 that disconnect between the current research and something like a running magazine or a website, mm. because we often get athletes coming in saying, I want to do a VAT max test, because They've read about it. They've read about it in a magazine. They've read about it somewhere else. But then when you start asking them questions, why do you want it? What are you going to do with this information other than say, 
Yes, well done. It's a, a you know high VO two max, and you're likely to have a you know um, aerobic potential, which they probably know because they're they're probably quite good. Um, and when you do ask those questions, sometimes the athletes don't know. They don't really know why they're in. It's almost uh, they, they 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 just want to know the answer, and that's absolutely fine. Others generally have a, a good reason, and they'll say, "Oh, it's for this reason," and my coach wants it for this, and you can, you can understand. But then sometimes you will say, well, have you thought about this particular testing protocol? Because with this, we can give you the following information. And that might be more beneficial. For, from what you're telling me, that might be more beneficial. So I've always been, obviously, as a, as a sort of sports and exercise scientist, as an applied practitioner from that side, I've always just been really interested in just trying to make sure that we're offering the best service that we can. Mm -hmm. So that's what links, obviously, to all the research that, that I'm currently doing yeah. to, to try and make sure that we are. And it makes it accessible as well, doesn't it? Because like you say, it's great that it's in those magazines and people are interested in science. But, you know, when you actually then can have a conversation and, and really break down actually what they're going to get from each test and the benefits of it. It, it just makes that science and that information more accessible to athletes uh, and things like that. So I think that's hugely impactful and it bridges the gap between that kind of academic science side and, you know, actually the, the athlete and performance. Um, okay. Uh, in terms of your golden nugget, then we're asking people for their one piece of advice that they would give to someone uh, who's interested in research uh, what is your golden nugget? I feel like a golden nugget should come from experienced uh, academics, but um, from, from my point of view, I think I, I would just get involved in as much as possible. Um, obviously, have your area of interest and, and something that you're really interested in you can focus on. But I've done quite a lot of research in the past on, on topics that I'm not necessarily familiar with. And... And I can help with certain aspects, whether that's data collection or data analysis. And, and that's been really useful because I'm not necessarily understanding why we're asking that question or what the theory is behind it. But the skills that I've gained from doing the data collection or the analysis has helped and fed into my own research. So I think that's, that's I, I think, probably the... Um, the best advice I would give early, early stage, because you just learn about the process of researching, whether that's, you know, contacting clients, advertising to participants, um, going through the sort of safety checks, park use consent forms, all, all of the sort of admin sides that you don't necessarily think about ethics, ethics submissions and um, just the process. And I think you can gain that from working with more experienced academics. So I think get that experience wherever possible, but always make sure you've got something that you're really interested in so that you can, you know, have that to enjoy and, and research. Yeah, that's really good advice. And I think a lot of um, undergrads or postgrads, like getting involved in those sorts of things does give such a good insight. And it also opens your eyes to kind of like what's out there and what different areas you can actually be interested in. Um, so I think that's a fantastic golden nugget. So thank you for that. Um, okay, we're going to move on to the final bit, which um, is obviously just a bit of fun, where we just get to know you in a very quick fire way. So we're going to play a bit of this or that. Um, so here we go. Coffee or tea? Coffee, I've probably had, I don't think I've ever finished a cup of tea in my life. <laughs> 
Great fact. The coffee. Yeah. <laughs> um, I should have put that fact yes. earlier. <laughs> you should have. Um, qualitative or quantitative? Uh, quantitative for me, please. Dogs or cats? Definitely a cat. Good. Uh, book or journal? <laughs> what book or journal? Um, I would say if I'm just trying to find some information, a book. I really like flicking through a textbook, but only if I've got it printed. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I can't get ebooks are brilliant because they, they especially during coronavirus, uh, to allow students to access books from home, but I can't I can't use them. I, no. <laughs> I feel I don't know, I like flicking through a book to quickly find oh that's the page I want. Um but if it's if it has to be online then a journal all the way. Yeah. Uh Instagram or Twitter? Um I would well Twitter, I don't have an Instagram account, so I'd have to say Twitter, but if you follow me on Twitter you'll realise I don't post anything. <laughs> I'm very good at liking though. So I'm a good liker and retweeter. You're just really supportive. Absolutely. <laughs> um, a lit review or methodology? Um, I love writing a method section. Oh, so do I. Oh, um, they're just brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, chocolate or sweets? If you'd asked me two years ago, I'd say sweets. Um, but then I had a moment where I thought I should stop eating sweets. So I did. And I haven't had anything like that type of sweets for, for two years. So oh chocolate. I just went completely cold turkey. So basically you're there with a bar of chocolate and half a cup of tea. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, undergrad or postgrad? Um, I'd probably say undergrad because postgrad I did part-time with a job. So it didn't really feel like studying as such. It was just part of my job at that point, I would say. Yeah. Winter or summer? Uh, winter if it's not raining. So a cold blue sky day is, is, is perfect. Reading. I don't like it too hot. No, fair enough. Reading or writing? Uh, writing, if I know what I'm writing about. <laughs> I think there's more reward. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, James, for, for joining me today. That's been really, really interesting. And I think what you're doing is so, so important in the world of sports science. Um, so thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks.